Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Tom. How are you? I'm doing okay. It is, we were just talking before we got going. Um, it is crazy hot in Chicago, though from what you were telling me, it's probably about the same temperature in uh, Dallas right now, and that's more of a, more par for the course for y'all, perhaps. Yeah. Unfortunately, this summer, um, you know, 105, 106 every day for weeks on end is is not unusual, but um I don't know. It's getting almost a little boring now to, uh, <laughs> I feel like everyone I see everywhere I go, it's like we start talking about the weather and then we're just like, yeah, okay, whatever. This is just the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think of that there's a good weather segue into um, volume three, but the weather doesn't really come up so much in, in this one, I don't think. But um yeah, today we are digging into volume three of Your Face Tomorrow, uh, Poison, Shadow, and Farewell. Um, this wraps up uh, Marius's mammoth project published in the early 2000s and um, wraps up our our project of uh, reading through Marius's work. The, we didn't cover all of it, but we covered pretty much all of it, I would say. Maybe in the future we can spend some time uh, going through his blog. He, he kept a blog for a very long time that was updated with some regularity with just thoughts and notes and things. Um, I, I stumbled across it recently, uh, again, um, remembering that I used to check it pretty religiously at one point in my life. But So it's still available? It's still, uh, it's still up there, yeah. And even if it wasn't, you could probably use like a Wayback Machine to, to find it. But yeah, just punch in the occasional uh, character name from one of his books and, you know, include Javier Marius or something like that. And especially if that character is based off of someone he knew in life, there might be a remembrance of that person that, that appears and you get a little bit more of that, that connective tissue. And then obviously he had tons of essays and reviews and the like, but for our purposes, I think we, we covered what we needed to cover. It feels like we've covered about 93, 94% of all the fiction. I feel that's probably not an exaggeration. I think that's accurate. Um, we didn't dive into the um, short stories or into his novella, but I think and they're incredible. Some of them do feel at times perhaps like a little bit of a, not really a rough draft, but uh, an earlier attempt at things that he then uh, pulled out more in the novels. I mean, for instance, the uh, doctor taking advantage of folks on the outside of the Franco government um, in the 1950s, which then got incorporated into Thus Bad Begins, that sort of thing. But always good to have something else to, to go back to at, at a later point. But yeah, so Poison, Shadow, and Farewell, probably the three clearest uh, <laughs> titles for various parts of, of this novel. What did you What did you think? How How did How did this bit um, strike you? Well, I think that listeners might recall that I wasn't totally enamored with Volume Two of Your Face Tomorrow. I really I really enjoyed Volume One, 
And I would say volume three for me was more, more in tune with the way I felt about volume one. And part of it is that I really, I just really love the character of Peter Wheeler. And so he's, I wouldn't say he's featured prominently in this one, but I feel like the last 150 or so pages is is pretty focused on Dez's last few interactions with Peter Wheeler. And we had, thankfully, although to my um, dismay, he still shows up, much less De La Garza in this one, um, which was a relief to me. But one of the more unexpected things and fascinating things for me was this new kind of theme that I don't recall ever, ever really seeing in the Moraes fiction that we've read before. And this is the Kennedy Mansfield complex, which was rather fascinating. And I don't know, Tom, should we maybe start there since that is kind of treated in the beginning of this book and kind of flows through and it's, it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, um, it's a, a a term of art uh, used in uh, Tupra's organization. Was it Mulryan that came up with it? Uh, I think that was. I think so. Yes. And initially, it sounded like it might have been just called the Kennedy, what have you. Um, but he insisted on uh, Mansfield being included. But basically, the the idea is that um, the circumstances of your death overshadowing and overwriting everything else that you've accomplished in your life, especially for people who may otherwise never be noticed in the first place or not much remarked upon, that how they died fixes them in time and fixes them in the the larger imagination. So it's obviously referencing John F. Kennedy, whom Tupra says, you know, said would have been remembered no matter what because of who he was, but that he died the way he did ensures that he is one of the first people someone would think of when they think of a president of the United States, they'll think of Kennedy simply because of, of his death. Um, and uh, Jane Mansfield, uh, an actress who, I mean, <laughs> they list off some of the, her first, including being the first um, like fully nude or bare chested um, Hollywood star in like in a normal American movie, um, which is just, that's great. That's one way to, one thing to remember her for, I suppose. But in her death, she, you know, became fixed in time. She died in a traffic accident um, in Louisiana in like 1964 or so. Basically the car she was traveling in, there was a truck in front of them and it came to a sudden stop and they ran right into it. Um, three of her children were in the back seat. Uh, they got away with nothing but bruises, but the three adults in the front seat, the driver, her lawyer, and um, possible boyfriend at the time, and Mansfield were all killed instantly. But it suggested it's unclear, and I even kind of poked around a little bit. It's not entirely certain. But in the photograph of the scene, um, there's blonde hair, and she was, you know, a noted platinum blonde. There's blonde hair seen to one side, which sparked rumors that she was uh, decapitated uh, in the accident or at the very least scalped. And that's what she's remembered for. And that's why why she's still remembered. Um, her movie career wasn't sufficient for her to be anything more than a bit of a, a trivia quiz um, than anything else. Uh, but now 
because of how she died. She's she's known. So this syndrome or what have you is something that they think about uh, in Tuber's organization with regards to how will people act? Like if there's a possibility that their last great act is what will define them um, and make them known. Where do they go? Where does that person go next? What do they do next? Um, I believe they use the term uh, narrative horror as a way of describing, which is such a good way of describing that uncanny feeling of how am I going to be remembered? And is it for the worst thing that I've ever done that I will be remembered? Well, it it doesn't even have to be. And I was kind of surprised that they um, didn't use this example in the book because to me, this we'll talk about how it really becomes a real application for Deza and Tupra in in the book. Um, but this Kennedy Mansfield complex and the whole idea of narrative horror, you know, just kind of how will someone recount a person's life story and. I feel like it can also be like a humiliating death, like Elvis Presley. And I was kind of surprised they didn't bring that up because, you know, he died in, you know, if if you believe some of the stuff, like his colon weighed 40 pounds (laughs) when he died and all of this kind of salacious detail. But, you know, I, I guess it's true that he like died on the toilet. So like this wouldn't be the way that you would think a, a famous, one of the most famous uh, performers in American history and therefore, you know, in, in the world's remembrance would, would want to die. But they also use it in the book to talk about not so much that you would be embarrassed or ashamed about the circumstances of your death or even that the circumstances of your death would be so extraordinary that they would overshadow your accomplishments in life, but also in the context of the possibility that some people that maybe don't have incredible widespread fame might actually like almost want to go out in a really weird way in order to increase their, their remembrance or their profile in posterity. Yeah. Did you ever watch the show Frasier? No. Okay. There's a, an episode and this is what immediately came to mind. Um, when, when this is first being back when I first read this and rereading it now, there is a scene where Frazier's uh, producer is describing to him the story of uh, Lupe Velez. Um, and Lupe Velez wanted to be remembered. So she created this like whole, she planned her suicide and planned it to be this lavish, amazing thing that whoever found her would be so struck by her beauty and how she was laying there and all the thought that she took to do it. And um, she took the pills to kill herself and then began to have serious stomach trouble from the food that she ate for her last meal and quickly ran to the bathroom, tripped, fell and um, died with her head in the toilet. <laughs> and as a, as a result, she is very much remembered for how she died and gets gets to be known as a result. But yes, I mean, this idea of choosing to go out in a way such that you don't disappear, that you don't go into the into the the, the one eyed, you know, 
speechless space that he he talks about all the time um, when he's when Maria is writing about death. Yeah, this desire to desperately be remembered, which is also reflected, I think, in <laughs> uh, careless talk as it comes up once again. The idea that folks are trying are constantly trying to make sure that they are known, they are remembered, and they do have some level of importance. I mean, I think that is something that Marius is pretty consistently concerned with, especially in his later works, how folks want to be known and and remarked upon, whether or not that's for good reasons or bad, is just the not being forgotten, I think. Well, should we talk, we're going now a little bit out of order in the sequence of the book, but because we're talking about the Kennedy-Mansfield complex, I'm wondering whether we should talk about the case study, so to speak, the person that Tupra assigns Deza to to observe um, this kind of uh, maybe maybe minor singer, musician, music guy, Dick Dearlove. He seems to be known pretty well in some countries, but perhaps he's not quite the megastar that he would hope to be. And, and Deza, Deza is told that um, he needs to sit beside this guy at a dinner after one of Dear Love's concerts and kind of do his, do his organization thing that Tupra and he and their colleagues do, which is try to interpret someone and predict kind of what they might do in the future. Because Deza is already at this point um, given a report on Dear Love. Um, he'd been in an interview and, again, presented this idea of narrative horror that um, Dear Love is probably capable of almost anything um, so long as so long as it serves like his needs to be known, to be remembered. Tupra assigns Deza to, again, as you said, uh, sit next to him after this concert. And it's a weird conversation. Dear Love is talking with another performer celebrity uh same age as he is and they're talking about sex and who wants to have sex with them and where where in the world's better a lot of it's all about how the dear what feels like the, the younger younger folks in spain are perfectly happy for him to have sex with them or not very engaged in the act because they're what they want is to go run off and tell other people that they'd had sex with him um, she talks about how she's experienced the same thing, except they throw, you know, her skirt over her face and how insulting that was at first. And then she got why it was the case. And it's just this really, really uncomfortable conversation. And coming out of that, Deza's disgusted by the end. He does tack on this idea to his report that Dear Love would do something to continue to be remembered, that he's terrified that his music isn't enough to keep him front of people's minds, that his star has already begun to fade, and that finding a way to continue to be remembered might actually be something of a priority for Dear Love at this stage of his life. Even to the point of maybe staging some kind of memorable death. Right, exactly. Which is rather what happens. Yeah, how do you want? How do you want to do this? You want to just jump around a bit, kind of hit the points you want to talk about, or do you want to do like a quick uh, plot hit? Because well, I feel like there are um, there's like five different plot lines. Like I kind of charted it out. You've got the Kennedy Mansfield Dick Dearlove thing, 
And then you've got Incampara with Perez Nusha's father. And then you've got the Manoya video, which is part of the kind of the video nightmare that Chupra makes Deza sit through. And then, of course, you've got the whole Castardoy and Luisa and what Deza decides to do, kind of inspired by Chupra. And then you've got, you know, the circumstances of Valerie Wheeler's suicide. Yeah, so it's a little bit, I don't know. I started with the Kennedy Mansfield complex because that's kind of at the beginning of the book, I guess. And because I said that it was an idea that I hadn't seen him talk about before. And I thought it was a quite an interesting one, but. Well, why don't we wrap, why don't we wrap that one and wrap a little bit of a bow around um, good old Dick, dear love. So towards the end of the novel, Deza is coming back from Spain, having had some very interesting adventures while he was home in Madrid. And the newspapers are splashed everywhere with the story of Dick Dearlove, who has murdered uh, a 17 or 18-year-old, it's unclear if it's Bulgarian or Russian kid, at his house with a spear, stabbed him in the heart and stabbed him in the throat, and is now in custody this is Dick Love's last great act. And Deza reads it and is immediately sure that Tupra had some kind of a hand in this, that whatever it is that, and yet he doesn't know why. Earlier in the novel, there is, a, or this part of the novel, there is a conversation with Perez Nuix where she lays out that, you know, they aren't just working for the state. They're also clearly working for private individuals who have sufficient money to, to engage these services. When Deza is not immediately able to talk to Tupra about what took place, he goes to her and she agrees that it's a coincidence and coincidences happen, but coincidence almost never happens around Tupra. And that, yeah, he probably did have something to do with this. And no, the state probably had no interest in this. Why would they care? But someone else might have. Someone else might have wanted to figure out a way to to make something like this happen. Or at the very least, that Tupra had played upon this fear of Dick to get him into a state to do this thing is how it kind of came across. And I think that, that Deza feels very, um, very guilty because I think that he really believes, and he might be right, that Chupra was motivated to kind of set Dear Love up to commit this horrible crime because of Dez's report after observing and having this weird post-concert discussion with Dear Love and his conclusion that, you know, that Dear Love was the kind of um, person and had the kind of psychology that he would do almost anything and go to almost any extremes of behavior in order to just keep his name out there. Right. And this also comes, I mean, it's within the novel and also within the, you know, the chronology of what's taking place in Deza's life. Um, immediately after he has a conversation with his father, his father is, unwell, has had many strokes, is has become unstuck in time and is clearly not much longer for the world, but is still capable of the occasional cogent um, conversation. And one of the things his dad says is, you know, I, one, the thing I'm proudest of is that no one died because of me. 
nothing I said led to someone's death. Um, and then not 10 pages later, Deza is firmly convinced that something he said led very directly to not just the death of Dear Love's public life, because who knows how much, you know, how long he lives in prison, et cetera, but the death of this kid, this young man who, whatever else his role is, he wasn't Dick Dearlove. He wasn't the person that was supposed to be like taken off the board as it were. And yet that's exactly what, what he was used for. It's also, I mean, I also just to note, I think this part of the novel does a really, I think, remarkable job of somewhat twinning um, Wheeler and Juan Deza. I mean, they're, they're both in declining health. They're both, they die six months apart. Um, they're both clearly father figures in uh, Deza's, I mean, obviously his father and a, pater- a paternal figure. And, uh, and they have similar, in some ways, outlooks uh, on the world and, and how, how it functions, and, but have applied themselves to that world in very different ways. Juan, Juan Deza did not take up arms in the Civil War, and um, Wheeler was active in it, and then very active in World War II. I don't know. I think, th- I think that part is also interesting. There's also just a really remarkable passage where Juan reads he sees Louisa and he sees his son very clearly and just describes him, describes the two of them and their relationship to Deza. Uh, Deza remarks that he feels like his father has taken on his role and he has taken on Tupra's role in the office as they're, as they're describing what's going to take place next. And I don't know, it was very neat. And there's also something very sweet about that moment. I felt like, well, should we talk about, Deza Sr.'s relationship with Louisa because it really reminded me in a lot of of instances with the relationship between the wife and the father-in-law in A Heart So White. Mm-hmm. In so far as the father-in-law seemed to be closer and understand the, you know, the the daughter-in-law even more so than than her husband did and when you said like see, he sees louisa does a senior i think that that's a really good way of of saying it because you know as you said does a senior is is forgetting things he's he's ailing he's getting weaker every day but he still seems to have kind of this pretty crystal clear perspective of like where Louisa is in relation to his son and how she's thinking about the marriage and with much more clarity and understanding than it seems that Deza himself understands like, is, is Louisa ever going to come back to me? Is he, is she, you know, What's she doing? You know, is she is she dating around? Is she serious about someone else? What's she thinking? Um, it is it is a really nice nice passage, and there does seem to be something I think, and perhaps there's more instances than a heart so white, but where Moraes depicts these kind of very close relationships between a man's wife and a man's father. I mean, that's certainly the case in uh, Berta Isla. Uh, Berta is very close with Tomas's father, 
especially considering that Tomas disappears from his father's life and isn't there when his father dies. I I think it also ties into something that Perez Newix says towards the beginning of this uh, volume, where I forget the precise circumstance, but um, Deza Deza makes some comment that about himself that she practically laughs at and uh, says, you know, this is the problem with even those of us who can see is that we are very one-eyed when it comes to ourselves. We still have ideas about who we should be or how we present uh, in the world and that impacts our our facility. And Juan um, Deza at one point just... I'm trying to remember the sequencing, but in that same conversation, he comments how semi-known uh, children are to their parents, that you know these creatures so very well when they're young, and as they become, as they move out into the world and become adults, they become progressively more mysterious because it's almost like they have too much narrative history. Like they, the ability to, the ability for some parents to let go of the child that was to see the person who is is difficult, is complicated, is imperfect at best. So I think I think that's part of it too, that he he has a familial and loving relationship with Louisa, but he also can just look at her as a person, separate from being raised by him or, you know, his his flesh and blood, as it were, um, and can actually assess in a way that Deza can't even look at Louisa that way and is given given cause to wonder if he even really does understand her in some very intimate senses of, uh, of understanding. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point about Perez Nuix kind of talking about the inability to understand or see yourself, because we know from volume one that there's this um, old file that Deza looks at and it's, it's, a file about him. Um, and he reads this report. It's not clear who wrote it. He thinks it might be Ryland's, but that was exactly like the observation that was made of him, you know, despite the fact that he's so very good at interpreting and, and understanding the motivations and the psychology of other people he pretty much absolutely knows nothing about himself and he's not even interested in knowing himself. I thought that that second point was, was very interesting because it, it tells us that he's not a, a self-reflective person very much. I mean, he's kind of going about his job and his fa- familiar duties, having some fun on the side. But yeah, I don't know that I would disagree with what the contents of that report and so far as what Maria's kind of depicts Deza as being, you know, throughout the narrative of the, of the volumes. I think, we should touch on the um, the finishing off the evening at Tupra's. Well, I think there are two things we should finish off. The evening spent with Perez Nuix, um, just briefly touch on that, because it does have some, it more ties in thematically, I think, than it has any like explicit impact on the plot. And it is 
as we saw in volume two, much more about Perez Newick's. If I talk about it this way, I think it sounds clunkier than it actually is. But in some ways, she's kind of downloading information about Tupra, about the workings of the organization, things that Deza hasn't picked up on or thought into the narrative. Um, but so we should we should wrap that one up. But I think we should also wrap up the, the evening spent with Tupra um, in the wake of De La Garza's beating, which can then give us a second to uh, give give De La Garza all the time he deserves, which is about 30 seconds. I think, too, it's important to introduce that Incompara guy because I was very um, affected by the fact that when they're watching those videos, Tupra is saying that, oh, you know, we're just going to hang on to this video of Perez's father getting the shit beat out of him because it might be necessary later on if if we need to keep her in the organization, which was kind uh, that, of a that was tense. Yeah, that was that was that was Tupra just that was a shot across the bow um, to Deza of like not only am I capable of beating the hell out of that guy you saw me beat up about an hour ago, but I'm also capable of blackmailing one of my own my bet one of my best people in order to keep them by, yeah. So, okay, let's start with Perez Nuix. Um, the ask finally comes forward, who, what exactly she wants him to do, or more, spe- more specifics around it. We know that she wants Deza because she's figured out that he's probably the next one to be pulled in to make this reading, to not, not scare Tupra off. And the person that this is for is basically a loan shark, a front man for a banker that um, had loaned a lot of money to Perez's uh, father. He's older. Sounds like he's always been a bit of a spendthrift and always gotten by on his charm as much as anything else. I think he's a gambler too, isn't he? And, and he and he was always a gambler, but now he's gone fully off the rails and owes a lot of people a lot of money. So he took out this loan, wasn't able to pay it back. And the circumstances of how this is all handled are we don't really need to go into. It's a lot of back and forth and, oh, you don't understand, but it's this sort of thing that was, frankly, a- after about the second or third like cross cut back on it, I'm like, just can we please move on with this part? Fine. Anyway, um, there's a guy named Incompara who is the person that he uh, that her father has been interacting with and he is vicious he will need something if not money he will need something to make up the debt and uh would have no compunctions about beating the ever-loving shit out of an old man and so that's what she what she wants is for deza to to do this reading on behalf of a private individual um, who wants to do business with Incompara, but wants to do their due diligence and has hired Tupper's organization to kind of give give a, a sense of is this guy is this guy good to do business with? And clearly, it doesn't work because one of the videos when Tupper says I have some videos I want to show you to Deza, one of the videos shown is of an old man in a pool hall being beaten within an inch of his life, beaten all over his body with pool cues. And it's it's her father. Um, so clearly, clearly, whatever Incompara needed in order not to exact some form of a message 
by beating up the old man. Whatever he needed, he didn't get. And now it's on video. Which Chupra mentions, I mean, he he does do a little bit of a pretty before saying that, you know, it could be used against Perez Nuix to keep her, that her father is the kind of man that would be almost more embarrassed to have it known that this happened to him than to have it had happened to him. And that it's useful it's useful if they need anything from him as well in the future. Um, and we'll get into why he has all those things, um, all these videos uh, in a moment. But yeah, I mean, other than the sort of cold-blooded nature of Tupra, the, I mean, anything, I, I do feel like the interaction with Perez Nuix was threaded through just to be able to give us another perspective or more information about the organization without forcing Deza to actually ask questions, you know, like it can just sort of be provided as a sort of um, data dump and it's interesting and it's well done, but it does feel, it does feel a little weird looking back on it. It does feel a little bit weirder and clunkier than I think you experience it in, in the reading of it. Well, particularly because it almost, um, and I know that, that we've, mentioned before the fact that, you know, this, this Your Face Tomorrow project was not meant necessarily to be a trilogy. It's just kind of, you know, dividing up into thirds, a big block of a book. But we do get this kind of cliffhanger feeling at the end of volume two. There's this woman in a raincoat with an umbrella in the rain, walking a dog, you know, what does she want? Who is she? Finally, you know, the buzzer below rings and it's Perez and she asks if she can come up. And then it's just kind of, we get a little bit of like the preliminaries. They're drinking. She's drinking too fast. They're smoking. She's got her, she's got a run in her stocking, you know, all of those things that we kind of went through with volume two, and then it, it does feel a little bit like, oh, this is building up to something like really tremendously big. And in this volume, you know, we pick up where she kind of goes into telling him a little bit about the history of um, MI15, MI6, and about how after the Cold War, they really couldn't afford to keep all their staff. And so one of the things that these people who were now kind of semi-unemployed or didn't have enough to do was the organization started, you know, doing work for private individuals, um, you know, private companies that wanted to hire security details or things like that. And to get the, the organization to turn from looking at foreign operatives and foreign operations and international governmental intrigues to, you know, just, just vetting vetting people for, for private companies. And, and so that's, I, I guess we needed that to kind of get us to why she was asking this favor, why Tupra and the organization were even bothering with Incompara. I mean, I think it also is Maria's dipping his toe into some of the more political elements that I think he, he does a lot more of in like Berta Isla and Tomas Nevinson. I mean, those are much more, I think those two novels are much more, and we talked about this much more explicitly, um, dealing with politics and um, foreign relations and the world and the state. And his earlier novels didn't really do that. 
it was much more on the interpersonal level, what each person owes the other, that sort of thing, against the backdrop of some important historical events. I mean, the, the Spanish Civil War is never far um, away in almost any of the novels. Maybe the man of feeling, but I'm not sure that guy even knew the Spanish Civil War took place. He seems so disconnected from everything. Man, I don't like that character, <laughs> as, as, I've, as I've discovered. Um, He's your De La Garza? Apparently. Oh, man, he... Shit. He would get along with De La Garza, probably. But yeah, I mean, so the Prosnuik's bits are are very are, are interesting, and she's an interesting character. I mean, it's remarked upon by multiple people how she's probably going to... She could be the best of all of them, um, better than anyone else has, has been at doing the work they do. Wheeler, I believe, made, uh, makes the comment um, in this volume. And on your point about the cliffhanger bit, I mean... The Presnuix bits are also kind of used to give a there's this there's this like a serial novel feel to how how this progresses. Um, each volume does have that cliffhanger, you know, wait till wait till next month when the next except it's like wait for two years for when the next <laughs> one will come out. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. It, it, those sections are interesting. They're very useful to the novel. And I mean, I I remarked on this before we started recording. I don't think there's going to be a point in my life where I do not consider Javier Marias to be one of the great writers I've read and possibly like my favorite novelist. I mean, I'll probably consistently go back to that. I will also say that uh, our project of reading so much of his work, I might be Marias out for a little bit. Um, it's been a lot of Javier Marias and living inside of his novels and his words for, for a few months now. So I, I say that to say that there might be a little bit of fatigue creeping in to, to some of his, um, narrative ticks and, um, approaches yeah, um, I, in, in my commentary. I think that I wouldn't recommend to any, any friend or or someone who who would want book recommendations from me to kind of do what we did and just kind of like read these thousands of pages of Marais narrative in one big gulp over the course of I don't know what now four or five months. Um, you do need you do need a palate cleanser for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I kind of have some of the fatigue that that I think that that you're experiencing too, Tom, but getting back to this, to this volume three, one of the things that surprised me, and I'm kind of picking up another narrative thread here is Louisa's love life. And I really did not see this coming. You know, Louisa doesn't play a major role in the previous two volumes. And I wouldn't say she plays a super major role, although I think it's a bigger role in this one than any of the others, but she always seemed to me to be quite a, you know, kind of an, an independent, plucky, funny, smart, confident person. But man, it goes kind of sideways uh, about midway through this book when it comes to Louisa. Do you want to kind of explain what happens Sure. So uh, Deza finally returns to Madrid. Um, he's been pulled all around Europe with uh, Tupra, 
and just hadn't made a return trip for quite some time. So he goes back for a couple of weeks and he kind of doesn't let anyone know he's coming because he wants it to be a bit of a surprise. And when he gets back, he finds that Louisa um, is seeing someone, which, I mean, it's been made pretty clear, I think, in the previous two volumes that he would like to go home. He would like to continue his marriage and to continue to be with Louisa, be in the lives of his children, and that it very much seemed to be her choice and her desire for this uh, end. Can I stop you one second there? Mm -hmm. Because there's a refrain that happens in all of these volumes, and it's it's been bugging me a little bit. So I'd be I'd be interested to see what your thoughts are. I, I agree with you that Des is still in love with Louisa, and he kind of has this imaginary, it's not even a dialogue. He imagines her asking him to come back. Come home. And it's always, yeah, it's this come home, come home. And it's always, I misunderstood you. What do you think that means? What do you think that she misunderstood about, about Deza? I'm not sure. I wonder if an element of it is, I mean, it's, he says fairly early on that he never turned whatever this gift is onto her. And that seems like a pretty weird thing for him to do. Like his ability to see people is a pretty core part of his personality and how he moves through the world. So if he's not, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe he just didn't engage um, as much or there was always a remove that she was uncomfortable with when it came to him and how he functioned in their relationship. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it's also perhaps part of this idea of uh, tomorrow's face that she didn't know what she was going to get next with him. And that was not acceptable too. But I think it's also interesting that come home refrain that appears so often and is always in his head is vocalized in this volume, but it's vocalized by Perez Nuix, where she's talking about how he how he is and how she feels like she feels like he could stay and do this job and be a part of the group for as long as he wants, but that he's just waiting. He's waiting to go back to Madrid. He's waiting for someone to tell him to come home. And I would imagine he was in a movie version of this, uh, the look on the actor's face portraying Deza would be one of like total shock to see his innermost thoughts stated by one of his colleagues. But, but again, Perez, Perez is supposed to be the best but in Perez, the organization. Exact, exact, and Perez is supposed to be the best. So here we are. All right. So I inter I interrupted your, your narrative about Deza comes home, Louisa's dating. But it's not just that she's dating. When he... He gets the sense that when he calls up to come by, that she is trying to avoid seeing him. And so he comes over after when she says to come over after she's already left and hangs out with the children and eventually figures, figures out from the babysitter that like the babysitter coming was a very last minute thing. And so he decides to stay until Louisa gets home. And when she gets home, she's annoyed he's there. And when she turns to look at him, he can tell that she's tried to use concealer um, over the fact that she's got a huge black eye. And he starts to worry and because she gives him a story about the garage door, which was also what um, Tupra suggested um, De La Garza say about what happened to, to his face, etc. 
And eventually he speaks with uh, Christina, her sister, Luisa's sister, who is con- also concerned because the man um, that uh, Luisa is seeing, Custardoy, um, who we have met before, has a reputation for women having spent the night with him and then uh, not wanting to talk about it and being quite upset by what took place. So suggesting that he likes to hit women and he really likes to hit women uh, during sex. And where Christina gets most of her information about Kisserdoy from is uh, her friend Juan Rons. So we have a heart so white really reappearing hard. And points for me, I remembered that Rons has a first name and it is Juan. So <laughs> yeah, I recognize the the Rons name as well. Um, I also recognized a um, a concept that comes up in. And I couldn't remember which book, but this old Anglo-Saxon word to uh, denote a relationship between two people because they've each slept with the same person. Um, and and now uh, to Deza's horror, like he and this custardoy guy um, who's a real creep seem to be in that relationship vis-a-vis each other. Yeah. Um, is it tomorrow in the battle that that comes up in? I kind of feel like it might be just because of he has some thoughts about the relationship with his relationship to the husband of the woman who died in his arms. Um, yes, I think that is right. Yeah, man, he he really likes to tie things in together. Um, all right, so Deza decides, and he's fairly clear with himself that it isn't solely because, I mean, he decides it's not safe for Louisa or his children to be involved with this Custardoy guy. But he's also, I mean, he is self-reflective enough to also know that it's jealousy, that he would hate anyone that Louisa is with because he doesn't want to be out of the picture. So he actually calls Tupra to get Tupra's advice. And Tupra's advice is like, I mean, are you calling? Tupra is very much like, are you calling me just to get permission or confirmation or what? Because if that's what you need, yeah, go do what you got to do. And um, Deza's like, well, what do you mean by that? And Tupra got impatient was like, dude, just remove him from the picture and like hangs up on him basically. So that's what Deza does. He um, tracks down Kusterdoy. He borrows a gun from a friend of his who is a matador, threatens to shoot him on multiple occasions, like cocks the gun two or three times basically recreates what Tupra did to De La Garza in the bathroom. He makes this, he makes this massive threat with a lethal weapon, uh, a gun in his, initially he asked for a sword, but the sword that was provided wouldn't have been as useful. And the mad or friend is like, well, I mean, so you're trying to scare someone, right? Well, you want a gun for that. I was like, what is, what is going on here? And I will say Tupra was right. Seeing the gun did not freak out um, Custardoy the way that seeing a sword may, may have. A gun was a little bit more relatable and a little bit less like, well, it's a gun. Um, versus if he pulled out a big broadsword and then be like, well, what is this guy about to do? But after threatening him with the gun, he goes over to Custardoy's fireplace, picks up a poker, and destroys the guy's left hand. Uh, Custardoy, as we know from um, previous um, books, is a uh, noted copyist and forger and painter. So he leaves the right hand alone, but he at least three times just smashes this metal poker into the guy's left hand, um, also uses it to um, cut his face 
some really like frankly brutal and clear like this is what will happen to you this is what i am capable of and tells him you know you need to disappear and you also need to disappear right now because Louisa can never make any association with you taking off or you being in bad shape and my having been in Madrid. It's, I don't know. What did you think of that scene? Um, well, it's something. It, it was, it was violent, but it was a little bit amusing too. Mm-hmm. And so far as, um, as you said, Deza calls Supra up. It's kind of, unimaginable what he thought Tupra was going to say. I mean, he knows he he's read Tupra. He knows what kind of the guy Tupra Tupra is. So, you know, if, if he ever thought that Tupra was going to like take him off of the, you know, the precipice of violence, but maybe he did need the permission, but he also kind of employs a lot of the tactics that he saw Tupra use, you know, kind of showing, scaring the living shit out of of uh Custardoy and and making sure that he understood that he meant business you know when he's done busting up the guy's left arm and gashing his face with the poker you know he says i want you to just remain here for 40 minutes you know don't go anywhere which is exactly what Tupper told De La Garza you know you stay in this bathroom um and, you know, you don't leave until, you know, 40 minutes or an hour and then just pretend this never happened. It works. It works in this case uh, or it seems to. It works to a point because and this is where we can quickly like just dart back to De La Garza. Deza goes to see De La Garza to kind of check in on him and kind of works his way into the embassy through various means, whatever, um, and finds De La Garza in conversation with Professor Rico. Um, so Professor Rico emerges, uh, I mean, we're not reading this chronologically, but one more time for us, Professor Rico and his shiny bald head uh, and, you know, surly manner uh, reemerges. And De La Garza, when he sees uh, Deza, because Deza is employing the tactics he's learned from Tupra and Mulryan of how to get into a room without anyone noticing, how to be quiet. This is the part of the novel where he becomes a shadow. Um, he shadows Custardoy through um, the Prado um, for quite a few rooms at one point. When De La Garza sees Deza, he is terrified. He want, The one thing he wants most in the world is for uh, Deza to disappear from his sight. He never wants to see or think of him again. And we can leave De La Garza there, traumatized, still trying to rap to a medievalist Spanish professor, part of the um, academy, an absurd, more than somewhat useless person, but also like a traumatized, desperately terrified one. Deza does see Custardoy one more time at the end of the novel, and Custardoy gives him a look. And it's interesting. Custardoy no longer has the mustache he had before. He's, you know, I think he's cut off his ponytail. He looks a little different. So it takes Deza a moment to recognize this new face. But Custardoy recognizes Deza. And Custardoy knew from the jump when Deza, like, began the assault who Deza was, even before he said, keep away from Louisa, etc. But Custardoy shoots him this look of loathing. Not terror, not fear, but almost a promise of if I can, I will someday get you back, which also jives with um, his Deza's last conversation with Tupra, where Tupra is like, Oh, by the way, how'd that business go? 
um, in Madrid. Did you take care of it? And Daisy goes, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's taken care of. To which Tupper goes, well, God tell you, Jack, if you think it's taken care of, it's not taken care of. So now there's always this lurking consideration of Custardoy in the background, capable of ruining his new his new life with Luisa and the children. Because at the end of the novel, he's back in Madrid. He's got a job again there. Um, he's left the organization over his his feelings about what took place with Dick Dearlove. And he and Luisa are together. They live separately. I mean, it's very similar to the relationship that Berta and Tomas have at the end of um, that novel. But um, there is that threat hanging in the air a little bit. And even and the book even ends with Deza saying that nothing nothing is wrong, nothing bad has happened, which is I don't know. It's an interesting way to to leave it off on. So we talked about the subtitle is "Poison Shadow and Farewell," and so the poison I think is for me it was pretty clear. It's these these films, these this, these records that right. that um, I think Deza explains it almost like an inoculation that Tupra um, foist upon him to kind of inure him to a certain level of violence because Tupra thinks that, that, that Deza is kind of a little bit too squeamish about using violence and doesn't, doesn't want to use it unless it's in self-defense and Tupra needs to teach Deza a lesson that sometimes, you know, it's absolutely according to Tupra, necessary. I think it's also a peek behind the curtain of how the organization works, that they have this vast archive of compromising events, whether it's illicit sex, whether it's torture, whether it's executions, that they keep this because it could be of use. And maybe maybe ending one person's life is how we then um, save thousands down the line. And, and it, there's a lot of self-justification going on there. But in a lot of Tuber's interactions with Deza, it seems like he's trying to break him of what Tuber sees as a, a naivete. That Deza can see Deza can see the world and people for what they are, and yet for whatever reason, in Tuber's mind, he's holding on to these antiquated notions of what's right or what's wrong or what's acceptable or what's not. Um, in Tuber's world, it's all acceptable. It all can be employed. It's all fair game. Yeah. And then the shadow, as you just discussed and described, is Deza shadowing Custardoy around the Prado and, you know, kind of um, not pouncing, but um, uh, surprising De La Garza, who's unaware of his presence while he's just kind of watching him for a while. But maybe we need to get to the, the farewell, which is, a, which is a double farewell. He has to say uh, goodbye to his father, but then I think more impactful for the the volumes before and this volume as well, perhaps, is the he has to uh, deal with the, the death of, of Peter Wheeler, but not before he has some very interesting discussions with Peter Wheeler. The scenes with Peter Wheeler at the end of this novel made me so very sad. It was heartbreaking what came across in his loss. Um, uh, the loss of his wife and also just sort of the, and this is also true with Juan, um, his father, these very impressive minds who are losing their way at the end and who would always circle back to the point, no matter how far afield they went, but can no longer remember what the point was or what the, where, where, 
where they bifurcated from such that they can loop back to it. So yeah, uh, Deza visits Wheeler before he leaves England and just asks him questions point blank. You know, what did you do during the Civil War? What did you, you know, what happened to your wife? And Wheeler, who's never told these stories before and is very clear to Deza that, you know, this is this is new information for, you know, no one else knows this, kind of happily tells him, gets lost along the way. Deza gently brings him back to the point and uh, details his activities in the Spanish Civil War, which are interesting and actually coincided a little bit with um, what Juan Deza was accused of, denounced for, um, interacting with the, uh, the Red Dean of Canterbury, but then goes into what led to the suicide of, of his wife, which, I don't know, Laurie, you've been, you're the one that's been desperate to, to find out what happened. Why don't, why, don't, why don't you recount that part? Well, it seems that um, Valerie Wheeler um, was employed by an organization that she didn't really know the full extent of their activities. It was, it was a, a British government organization and the whole country um, and everyone in the government, of course, was totally totally mobilized and focused on defeating the Nazis. And she was working for a very ambitious boss um, who was always trying to think of ways to undermine the Nazi regime through clandestine means and, and I think some overt means as well. But it turns out that Valerie had a best friend who lived in Austria, Austria when they were girls. And the best friend's sister married this man who um, was rising in the ranks of the, of the SS. And Valerie tells her boss about this guy. And they... The, the organization that she works for somehow creates some misinformation or reveals some information about the fact that the Nazi, the husband, was actually, I think, a quarter Jewish. But he had hid his identity and paid to have the, the papers kind of annulled from his record. Although we also learn from Wheeler's story that, you know, that these kind of records were never, were never expunged really. Um, it was okay to be a quarter Jewish in, in theory under the Nazi regime. You didn't have to go to the concentration camp, but um, you certainly weren't going to be, you know, rising, elevated in the ranks of the SS. And this secret about this gentleman is revealed through the, through the work of Valerie's organization, and it causes her best friend's uh, sister and children, just irreparable harm and really almost, uh, they, they just, some of them disappear. Some of them clearly died. Um, but Valerie gets a letter after the war from her friend who she, and she hasn't, she hasn't communicated with her. They haven't been able to communicate during the war. And, you know, her friend just, uh, expresses in this letter without suspecting Valerie, at least I didn't get the sense that Valerie thought that the friend suspected her, but she just tells the story about this horrible 
this horrible information that was discovered and how the family had suffered because of it. And she wonders, the friend wonders how or why this information came to light. And Valerie just feels incredible guilt, particularly about the children and the wife. And she commits suicide. Wheeler reflects on that, that the letter got to her, that there are so many, I mean, doesn't explicitly state, but kind of implies like there are so many ways for a letter to get lost and for her never to have seen this kind of brought to mind again, thus bad begins and, you know, letters crossing and who reads them, who doesn't and how they act upon them. But um, it's, and it's so apparent from Wheeler's heartbreak that the night that she killed herself was the night that he fell asleep. She was still awake and he fell asleep, even though he knew those hours that she was awake so late were the most dangerous and he wakes up and she's not there and he walks to the stairs and calls her name. And she's at the top of the stairs, uh, precisely where Deza had cleaned the blood after the party. And when he calls her name, he hears the explosion. Her body goes backwards and she shot herself in the heart. Mrs. Barry, the housekeeper, later writes Deza a letter after, after Wheeler's death to say that, <laughs> to forestall his concern that he'd witnessed a supernatural event, that Wheeler... Uh, he died of a pulmonary embolism, but that he'd been coughing up blood for some time. And so it was entirely possible that as he walked up the stairs, he breathed out heavily and some blood came out at the same time. And that that is what Deza cleaned. And that is why both she and Wheeler had kind of pretended like it hadn't happened because Wheeler was pretending like he wasn't, Wheeler never got diagnosed. He was acting as though he wasn't dying. Yeah. And that blood stain becomes a powerful met- metaphor throughout these mm-hmm. three volumes because Deza's constantly thinking about things that just resist denial or or never go away and he talks about you know just like just like the outside rim of a blood stain it's always it's always the hardest to remove when you're trying to to clean it and that just that keeps coming back again and again. I mean, it's interesting. He does do a little bit of Henry V in, in this volume, um, but there aren't as many explicit Shakespeare references as there are in the others, though clearly, you know, the out damned spot. It, it's more that he uses metaphor versus like explicit reference um, in in these in this novel than he does in, in some of the others. No, I mean, Wheeler's story is, it's heartbreaking and it's, it's also the, the idea, I mean, it cuts again to loose lips. Um, and even though what Valerie suggested was in support of the war and undermining morale and all those things and increasing suspicion within the SS ranks, the consequences of it, which were far beyond what she would have imagined, were terrible and something that she felt she felt she couldn't live with. There's also an interesting comment early, like at one point in that conversation where Wheeler kind of describes Deza and he references the report that he read um, and asks Wheeler if Wheeler was the one that wrote it, to which um, Wheeler goes, oh, no, I never wrote I, d- I never wrote anything down. Wheeler only spoke um, and then suggested that it was Rylands that actually written it, that he was his first sponsor, as it were. I think this is probably a good point to kind of hit on the novel as a whole and kind of where we where we place it or how we feel about it <laughs> in a way but also kind of the project that uh, that we've that we're wrapping up here before we do do a new a new one 
So yeah, um, thoughts. Uh, I think we both have a lot about um, this this novel. So let, let's start with the novel, and then we can move on to the project as a whole. So your thoughts on uh, your face tomorrow? Well, we kind of shared some impressions before we started recording today. You know, for me, Tom, this was um, I had read as I think I explained to you, volume one, um, about a year and a half ago, I'd never read volume two or three until this month. So pretty intensive reading <laughs> of all three, uh, volumes. Cause I reread volume one as well. This feels like the most Marais of Marais novels. It's almost quintessential, like Uber, too much Marais. And I say that as someone who loves Marais. And um, although I didn't get hooked on him nearly as early as you did, because I didn't start my career in in books until 2017, which I think is when I read his first, the first book of his that I read, I've anticipated every new novel that he had coming out, you know, until he died. And I went back and read the old ones before we we started this podcast. I think that this is almost feels a little bit too, too intensely circular and dare I say redundant in some ways. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of momentum. It's a much longer work than the earlier novels that come before it. And it's it's longer than the works that come after it, too. But there are some chunky novels that come after this one, as we know. But I feel like they kind of they kind of move a little bit more effectively. I again, and I've already acknowledged some fatigue. I still really love this novel. I really think it is uh, something of a summation of what he'd been doing and the novels that led up to it certainly this idea of letting letting the mind and letting time move at its own pace um, is a, a, absolutely an overriding theme um, in, in how it's constructed. I do, and maybe it's just because I've read all, <laughs> I've read so much more since the first time around that I, I read this. I do think that sort of serial, serial quality to it and the fact that like maybe it's an effect of the way it was published it does kind of make it feel a little stodgy. It, it does slow it down in, in some respects. Um, I, if published as a single volume or all at once, instead of being 1,250 pages, I could see it being like a 900-page thing with a lot of the the circling back cut out because it'd just be more of a streamlined whole. Um, or maybe not. Maybe actually it'd been even longer um, if if someone had to, to, to edit the whole thing at once versus had edit it in chunks. Um, I don't know. In some respects, I guess I view it as something a little bit separate from the rest of his work. I don't think it fits in with either as much as it is a summation of his earlier, of those previous, like the earlier novels, it's also doing some different things. It's also just a different kind of animal. Um, and it doesn't really fit in with the others. I think it kind of exists separately. I I don't know if it's his best novel. Obviously, I have an incredible affection for Heart So Light and Thus Bad Begins. And I've hopefully mea culpa my way through my not appreciating Thus Bad Begins earlier. 
it's just a very different animal in my mind. And maybe that's a cop out, but um, yeah, I I like it. I, I like, I think that it is doing so much work thematically. It is playing with so many things. I think it also is really starting to open up what comes next in Thus Bad Begins, in Berta Isla and Tomas Nevinson, not as much in the infatuations, but somewhat in terms of the the political dimensions that he starts to get into in his later career. I think that's really kicking off here um, harder. And I think in some ways, the the merging of those two things, um, his Marius living inside the head of the characters so thoroughly and circling back around and around in a spiral with the political dimensions may not be a, a great fit, but I think it's... I think it's pretty neat at the same time um, and neat to see him work his way through. And in, in thinking about my, I'll say, call it mild dissatisfaction with your face tomorrow. Uh, and I'm talking about the entire three volumes. I would say that I don't, I don't really like the way that Tupra seems to me to be quite undeveloped as a character. I just, I don't, it's not just that I don't understand him is that I didn't think he was terribly interesting. And then Deza, Deza almost just feels like a cipher to me insofar as we are just getting his reactions to outside influences, circumstances that he's involved in things that happen to him, what people say to him, but how is he really internalizing these things? Of course, we know that the, the Tupra sword fight with De La Garza seems to have had an impact because we can see, you know, very strong echoes of that in the way that Deza disposed or did not dispose uh, of Custodori. But I think that, yeah, I, I would have liked to have kind of understood a little bit more about what is going in going on inside of Daisy's head, I think, but in a way that that seems so ironic and contradictory to me because there's so much kind of musing in this book, but Daisy's musings and thoughts seem to have like an emotional deadness to them. That, for instance, in I think my favorite, Thus Bad Begins, like I feel I, those those people. And characters felt very much alive to me because I could feel, I could, I could feel their feelings. I could feel the emotions. You know, I don't dislike Deza. Like I kind of dislike Tupra, but I just, um, I don't know. Am I making sense? No, you are making sense. I mean, I think, I mean, quickly on the Tupra point. I think it's interesting. We get we spend so much time with Tupra here that. In Tupra's later appearances, he's much more interesting because there's almost an element of mystery about him. He's all shadows and angles, right? Like, you don't know who he is at any given moment. And, and chronologically, in terms of, like, Maurice's work, this is, like, the, the big introduction of Tupra. And by the end of it, while he's dangerous in a lot of respects and highly competent, he also comes across as a bit of a functionary, right? And, I mean, and in some ways, I think that might be part of Maurice's point, especially when it comes to people who perpetrate violence on, on the part of the state, um, Manoia included, that they are, they're scary, but they're also just sort of like bureaucrats. And that's not as, 
engaging or interesting. Whereas the spy master type Tupra we see in Berta Isla and Tomas Nevinson, while the bureaucrat shows up quite a bit, is far more interesting as, as a foil or a counterpoint um, versus a co-pilot as he seems to be in this one. I do also think though that, I mean, Deza is drifting. And, and when we first meet him, it's in All Souls. And he's drifting through that novel. Like he's just sort of in this liminal space, right? Like it's just sort of a, a Cesara in his life, his time in, in Oxford. And now he's back in England and kind of existing again in that liminal space. He's he's not married, but he's not divorced. He's working for this nebulous organization that has no name, doing a very ambivalent job, like ambivalent in terms of what it actually is, ambivalent in terms of what his skills that he brings to bear are. But by the end of the novel, I think, and this shows up when he's saying goodbye to uh, Louisa as he's about to fly back to London, having handled Custer Doy, he is in the apartment when Custer Doy calls Louisa to say that he has to take off unexpectedly so that she doesn't see that he's all jacked up and, and all those things. And he's reflecting on something that, and this is all like obviously thinking back on it, but at one point in conversation with his sister-in-law, Christina, Christina says, this isn't the Jamie I know. Um, he's let Christina in on the fact that Custardoy has been removed, but won't tell her what he did. So she says, this isn't the Jamie I know. Um, and his reply is, no, I'm not. I am more myself. And this is, I think at the end of the novel, Daisy, Daisy, Deza has, um, I can't believe I just did that. Deza has made a choice. Like he's, he's an active participant. Um, he's not just reading people and seeing things. He's actually engaging in his life and in the life that he wants and the life that, and the world that he wants to be a part of. That's kind of, that's kind of where I, I guess I'm landing on him at this moment that, there is a marked change by the, like he has changed by the end of the novel. I think there's a fair point. I mean, through, I don't know, 800 pages, he's in limbo. He's waiting. He's living this life, but he's really just waiting for Louisa to say, come home, come home. I misunderstood you. Now, whether or not now that he is back home at the end of volume three, you know, whether he isn't still going to be waiting, because I think that I didn't get any sense, at least in my reading of it, that Louisa necessarily was ready to take him back. In fact, you know, he says that she wants to continue living in separate homes and, you know, kind of share, swapping custody with the kids. Um, so he's he's physically back in Spain and he's closer to his family. I, I don't know. They're just, I, I guess I wanted to see a little more fire in his thoughts. And maybe... Maybe that's unfair because maybe he's just not an emotive kind of guy. We know he's angry as hell that Custardoy's beating the shit out of Louisa. And he and he does, after kind of a deliberative, measured, let me call Trooper to see if this is okay, he beats the shit out of Custardoy's hand and rips up his face. But it, I wouldn't call that at all an act of passion. I mean, it was more... It was more kind of like a premeditated, I got to do what Tupper did to De La Garza, which is scare the living hell out of this guy so that he'll do what I want him to do. And it, yeah, it, it is, you're, you're quite correct. It is not a passionate, it is a, 
It is cold and methodical, calculating exactly how much violence is the right level of violence. And to be frank, he probably got the level wrong because Custardoy isn't terrified of him. He's just more pissed and fearful, but also like plotting. And it's also a question of if he'd done that to De La Garza, De La Garza would still be terrified. It's a question of like knowing that the person that you're doing that to, what is it, what is the level that's necessary to actually instill that? Which I think Tupra probably would have thought, and probably correctly, uh, there is no level. You just kill him. Like you, you take him off the board completely if you want him gone in this particular instance. But uh, Deza doesn't have that level of experience or you know capacity, perhaps, to to do that sort of thing. No, I mean you're right. He is uh, he is he is oddly devoid of emotion in in a lot of respects and very mechanical in terms of how. I and mean, even when even when he knows that he and Perez Nuix are about to have sex at the end of that evening, it's sex is often portrayed as this very mechanical thing in Marius's work. Two exceptions being uh, at the end of Thus Bad Begins, that fling seems a little more passionate a little more engaged and also in this one one of the the snuff tapes so it's not a snuff tape that he views is of a morally upright crusading mp um female mp who is seen um having a threesome and it sounds like everyone's actually having a good time which a lot of the sex in marius doesn't sound like anyone's having an especially good time i have to say I thought that um, the dad in A Heart So White had a lot of, I loved that character because, yeah. I mean, he's he's done some really horrible things, but I felt as though he, I think he did really at the beginning have a real wild passion for that first wife um, mm-hmm. that he then ends up, you know, killing. Um, but... But he felt like a real hot-blooded person, and I guess, I guess that that the men in maybe with the exception of my favorite guy Wheeler, all these guys seem to be just really just passionate. And I think there's one other favorite person that we should definitely quickly bring up, which is the dancing man who doesn't actually show up in this one, except that Custardoy reminds Deza of the dancing man, which is when. Deza knows he can't kill him because he's just, he's too much like this guy that he has a fondness for. So instead, I'm just going to destroy your hand. The dancing man has some passion to him, I think. Yeah. And also the dancing man, you're right, doesn't come up in volume three until like, you know, the last 75 pages. And only then it's just like the quickest reference, as you said. It's not, we don't see Deza looking at the dancing man again or you know, looking out his window and dancing with him or anything like that. But yeah, that is an interesting comparison about Custardoy reminding him of the dancing man. There's one other thing, and and I don't want to go, you know, too over time here, but I thought it was really interesting that Wheeler, before he dies, tells it's not like his last dying words or anything, but in one one of their very lengthy conversations, he tells uh Deza that you and Tupra really aren't that much unlike each other. You, Deza, might want to think that you're nothing like Tupra, but you're actually quite a lot alike. And I thought that was a very, that gave me pause for a little while. I think that also kind of came up in in volume two with like who is capable of killing and who is not. And it's pretty clear that Deza is in the camp of capable and he was capable 
up until the moment that he thought of the dancing man of killing Custer Doy in that moment, if that was what the, was the best choice. And certainly Tupra is as well. Um, yeah. And the, but there is also perhaps some of the blood, the bloodlessness of it or the mechanical nature of some of the, the thought processes. There are times where Deza feels like a reading machine, right? like a seeing machine more than a person bringing everything that he knows and everything he's learned to bear just to be able to see this person in all their particularities and possibilities. So, yeah. I guess looking back at our intensive reading project here, I am certainly happy that I read Your Face Tomorrow. I don't think that it's it's a book that it the three volumes are something that you that you need to read not only or just if you're a Moraes completist. I mean, you really need to read them if you've got much of an interest at all in Moraes, I, I think. But for people coming into my bookstore and who've never read Moraes, I certainly wouldn't ever have them start with your face tomorrow. And I think that I would even say if you're only going to read one or two Moraes novels, don't even read your face tomorrow. I would probably pick I would pick Thus Bad Begins, surprise, surprise. I would pick A Heart So White. I might pick The Infatuations. But yeah, this one this one doesn't even make my my top three, four, or five, I don't think. I mean, I think it is such a it is a it is a bit of a beast. I think it's also just such a I think there's a lot going on here in terms of where things stood at the turn of the millennium. Um in culture and um, how people viewed things, connections to the past, um, long forgotten wars that still have impact to the de- to that day. I think there's a lot going on there that we haven't ever really touched on because that's not really like what our interest is that you could mine and really do a lot with. Were I to tell someone the two Marius novels they should read, I would tell them to start with All Souls because I think that's just such a a great way to get into his style and his thought process and his sense of humor and then yeah it would either be uh hearts of white or thus that thus bad begins depending upon like their flavor <laughs> like what, what what they might what they might be engaged in i think there's a lot going on in his overall writing project that's kind of muddy at times in terms of how he sees the world and how he sees things and what what he's pulling into play and i think that's part of what makes this one a little weird and a little muddy in in some respects. But I also think that as sort of a a wrapping up of what a great novelist had been up to up to that point in his career, there's a lot to recommend it too. So I guess I would say someone should read All Souls, Hearts of White, Thus, Thus Bad Begins, and then if they're still on board, to give volume one a try. And I think I think also, what is weird about this novel is that Volume One is so recognizably Marius and so recognizable and has such momentum to it that when it gets muddier as it goes, it hurts it. Volume One is Volume One could be a novel by itself. Volumes two and three require everything that came before, and that's tricky when it comes to to maintaining narrative momentum. I think. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. But it's been really wonderful reading all of these with you, Tom, and and talking about them. And I feel like we probably 
gave a lot of spoilers to all of these novels that when we were talking about them, but um, the writing isn't necessarily of, of a type that, you know, it's like linear plot lines or, or things like that. It's, it's a, as we've described, a lot of circling back and circling round and, you know, kind of going one way and then taking another narrative thread. And it's, um, it's a complicated way I can't, I can imagine to write. And it's, um, well, I mean, what an incredible author. I, you know, he was certainly, Moraes is one of my top five contemporary authors of all time, I think, just because of the body of work and how it's just consistently really excellent. Yeah. Um, if you're reading Marius for plot, I mean, the plots are good, but that's not why, you're sh- why you should be reading Marius. So yeah, this has been fun. And I'm looking forward to our next project, which we'll announce soon. But after this episode goes up, we are going to take a little bit of a break, like a week, maybe two, no more than that. And then we'll be back with some backlist, uh, which we haven't done for about a month now. And um, yeah, backlist, uh, the new project. And yeah, this has been really fun. And I'm looking forward to uh, to season two, as uh, we should probably start referring to it. Yeah. Take care, Tom. Bye, Lori. 